So today we're going to talk, as we are in the second message of this series, Exploring Wider, Questions That Enlarge Us. Questions That Enlarge Us. So last week we began with a question, how did it all begin? And you remember Buzz Lightyear said, to infinity and beyond, right? Well, there is a way of looking from infinity and beyond. And last week we talked a little bit about how God brought things into being. So we were very scientific last week. And we basically talked a little bit about infinity, mystery, cosmology, and theology. And we said that the best that we can understand as to how God is working in the world is to understand the nature of God as it is stated in the Bible. Perpetual light, God is light. Perpetual love, God is love. And perpetual spirit, God is spirit. Now, other descriptions of God, as we will see here today, have a certain humanization about them, human analogies and metaphors sometimes that are used to describe God that are not his nature, but they are given to us to help understand qualities of God uh, as we live out our human life. So last week we said that uh, scientists have told us about the universe beginning approximately, I don't know how you can be definitive on this, but approximately 13.7 billion years ago. And we talked a little bit about how from this start of a creative order, there were a multiple of universes that keep expanding. We don't know if the universe that we live in is the very first universe or not, but what we do know is the fact that in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it might be the heavens of our own universe, and what we also know is that in the beginning there was darkness that covered the land, which is telling us there was something already in existence when God began to form the universe that we live in. So we're talking about multiple universes, and we're talking about the expansion of these universes, and we used an illustration, you'd have to go back and look at, uh, at the message on YouTube, where I had a string across the room, and we had balloons that we blew up to show that as the universes are expanding, and as they are getting farther apart, what we are finding is that scientists believe that the universe potentially could continue to expand to infinity and beyond. That there is no stop to this creative energy that continues to create other worlds. Now most people would then say, well, is there life on other planets or in other universes? And the answer to that is if that universe is conducive to life, like our universe is conducive to life here, it is very much a possibility. And uh, we just don't know because we're looking into the Hubble telescope and we're doing a lot of equations uh, by very sophisticated math and all that type of thing to be able to determine uh, the age of the universe as well as the potential for life. So that now brings us to this. What created the Big Bang? What created this process that is ongoing? And the scriptures tell us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So while we're only looking at life from the bubble that we live in, we are told that God had a very important part in that process. 
The problem is when we use the word God, we are using a very loaded term, aren't we? It has a lot of history to it. It has a lot of expectations to it. So who is God or what is God is a question that has been uh, asked by many religions around the world for hundreds and thousands of years. Now, we are surrounded constantly by our neighbors and our friends and our family, as well as different religious systems that have some very deeply held convictions, as well as vested interests on who they think God is. Well, the word God is much like a mirror, because when we try to visualize and understand God, we are projecting our own understanding and in, to some extent our own images of what God is like onto this word that we use all the time. In a, two weeks, we're going to talk about how different religions approach this topic and how uh, they have their own way of trying to answer this question, who or what is God. Next week, we're going to talk about what is man. So this is all kind of building how did it all begin? It's been a long process. Who started it all? Well, that's the subject for today. Who is God? So in this ever-expanding universe, what we are doing is we are looking at a concept, a concept, God. And perhaps because God is a part of an ever-expanding universe, maybe our conceptions of God are expanding as well. Now think about this. When you look back into the Old Testament, the only way they could understand God was from their own culture, their own perspective, right? They lived at a particular time where there are no Hubble telescopes and all that type of thing. But when you look in the Old Testament and ask who or what is God, many times the answer will come back, God is small, God is narrow, God is mean, God is violent, God is capricious. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus begins to unfold before us a different concept of what God is like. It's a much bigger picture. We see God is more compassionate. God is more loving. God uh, uses, or at least Jesus uses the term for God as Father. But even those two concepts, from Old Testament to New Testament, by the time you hit the 1960s, what you find is that... Um, Many of those concepts have been outgrown. And in the late 60s, I remember a Time Magazine front page uh, said, God is dead. I don't know if anybody remembers that, that era at all. God is dead. So on the university campuses and so forth, there's this idea that we have outgrown this old concept of God. Okay. God is dead. That wasn't really uh, an existence statement as much as a, an existential statement. That we can't live with the concepts of God from the Old and New Testament. That God is dead because we have outgrown it. Now, when we get started on this question, there are several admissions that we have to make on this. Number one, God is always bigger than our thoughts about him or her. Do you notice the pronouns there? Most of the time, because this is the way God is referred to in the Bible, is God is him. He's always got male pronouns. 
However, if it is true, God is light, God is love, and God is spirit, then the use of pronouns is inappropriate. Because what we find, as we'll see next week, God made man in his image, both man and woman. So to use gender terms, even there we're projecting onto the concept of God, our own concepts of, and use of pronouns. Secondly, when we speak of God as a being, we always use what is called, big word, anthropomorphic terms. You know, when you read the Bible, it talks about God's hand or God's arm. Those type of concepts are terms that we relate to because that's how we live out our, our existence, right? But God doesn't have an arm, right? God doesn't have a leg. That type of thing is all projection back onto God. Thirdly, a view of God cannot be static, but an ever-evolving attempt to understand mystery. So last week we talked a little bit about mystery and cosmology and theology. And what we find is our best attempts to define God always have elements of mystery involved in them and questions that we cannot answer because we are finite. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So, where do we all begin then? Well... From the time that we are children, human beings, doesn't matter where you live, whether it's in the West or in the East, whether it's in Europe or South America, we all begin with, as children, a concept of God that has human connection to it. Okay? So when we think about God, it always has this idea of God as a father, right? God is like a father, or like a mother, or like a strong tower. Or We always begin with human concepts here. So it doesn't matter where we are from, even the religion that we are exposed to, and even the experiences that we have in life all kind of shape, right? Different ways that we look at God. All religions... Doesn't matter if it's Christianity, doesn't matter if it's Judaism, it doesn't matter if it's Islam, it doesn't matter if it's Buddhism, it doesn't matter if it's Hinduism, or any other religion, all have some element of a humanized view of God. And that is, because we cannot conceive a spirit, we cannot conceive of light, I'm talking about pre-light, the light that created the light that we enjoy, or fully the concept of love, then we begin to project onto God some of these qualities. So, let's come back to this story I read for us this morning. When God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals to him, him uh, out of a burning bush. Now, that's an interesting element there. God did not reveal himself in a temple didn't reveal himself in some type of worship experience. This is Moses that's been sitting for years on the backside of the desert, tending flocks, and all of a sudden God shows up and says, I've heard the cry of your people and all the trouble that they have been in in Egypt. Now think about this for a moment. The humanized understanding of God had been long in effect for these Jewish people. They were enslaved for 400 years. Egyptians had multiple gods, right? A pantheon of gods for everything. The sun god, the moon god, the river god, whatever. In fact, 
in the book of Exodus, most of the plagues are directed against some of their um, more important gods in the Egyptian system. But all of this has had an influence upon uh, the Jewish people. In fact, it is believed that the Jewish people were polytheists, just like every other uh, group that lived during that time that believed in multiple gods. This is the first step where there is more of a concept of a god, a one essence that uh, God reveals himself, and it continues to do so over the rest of the Old Testament. It's not like the Jewish people all of a sudden be, uh, believed that there was one God. That It kind of teases itself out over the Old Testament. And finally, by the time you get to the New Testament, there is more this idea of monotheism, the belief or view of one God. So what did they have to do? It's the same thing that we have to do. Uh, you have to continue to explore and continue to expunge concepts of God that are no longer relevant because we have all been shaped by this humanized view of God, this humanized view that religions come up with. So what we tend to do is we project our own worth and our own vices onto God. That, so <clears throat> when we think of God, why does the Old Testament project a, an understanding of God that is so violent? Well, it was a violent time in the world where you have tribes that are fighting and conquering other people. So all that is good, we project onto God, but even our vices we project onto God because God is more like us than what we are ready to admit. So God, though, says to Moses, I am who I am. I bet Moses thought, well, that's a lot of help, right? I am who I am. Well, this idea of God as I am who I am doesn't pin God down to a river or to the moon or to the stars or to the sun or any other thing that's in creation because God unveils himself as the essence or the being or the hypercenter of everything. And I think that's what the idea of I am who I am is all about. Maybe another way of putting it is God is the whole of every whole. So uh, we are living here in Willoughby, Ohio. And God is a part of the whole of living in this community. And I think that's why God reveals himself to Moses in the wilderness. Because most religious systems have temples, and that's where God's house is. And we even talk about that sometimes in church. D don't do that in God's house, right? That type of thing. That's a misconception. God is present as being the wholeness of being everywhere at all times. Yes, we use a particular spot, this classroom, or a church setting, or wherever it may be where people will give homage to God and praise and worship God for who he is. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean God is only located in that locale, right? This God that created multiple universe is the living wholeness of all reality. And you go, but that doesn't help me a whole lot. I know it's kind of vague. It's hard to get your hand around, isn't it? But wherever there is something, there is God. We call that omnipresence. When you talk in terms of theology, God is all-powerful. God is all-present everywhere, that type of thing. 
So he is the wholeness of being. And what we find is this. This is amazing to me. When finally Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says to Moses, I'll show you, but I'm not sure you can live after seeing all who I am. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll show you a part of who I am. Now it's interesting that in Exodus 33, Moses is not shown the face of God. Again, that's anthropomorphism, right? Okay, this is using human terms. He can only see the back of God. Okay, now, what is that trying to say? So Moses hides, it, hides in the cleft of the rock. There's an old hymn that goes like that as well. I, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Okay, that's an old hymn. That's where this, uh, that, uh, that song comes from, is this passage. You will see my back. You will see my back. Now what is it that God is saying? If you're standing beside, behind someone and only see their back, you are seeing where they're going, not where they came from. Hold on to that, okay? You're watching where they're going. Now, God is showing Moses where he's going in the unveiling of himself. So, Moses could look back and you have all kinds of concepts, especially in the Egyptian pantheon. Oh, God is like a frog. You know, God is like a fish. God is like this. God, God is like that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I am who I am. I'm the wholeness of being. And I'm going to show you where I'm going. Okay? So, God expects for mankind to continue to develop and to grow in their understanding. Now, the problem is most religion is always fixed in looking back. doesn't matter which religion it is. It always is fixed in looking back. What does the Bible say? What does the Quran say? So when we continue to look back, what are we seeing? Well, we are seeing images of God as it was unveiled at a particular important, important time for people in the past, but it's not looking ahead, is it? So as we continue to learn more about the universe, What we are discovering is God is unveiling more about who he is. We have to be open to that. Rather than defending some type of doctrine that has been uh, uh, somehow uh, institutionalized by various religions, that is helpful, no doubt about it. But you move beyond that. And as you move beyond that, this is what um, God says to Moses. He says, you know... You just look at where I'm going. Now, think about this for a moment. The whole story of the Old Testament is a movement of where God is going. Very physically, as they come out of Egypt, one of the things that they do is they follow a pillar of fire and a cloud as God leads them across the wilderness toward a promised land that he uh, made a promise that they would live in a land of milk and honey. Now that brings me to a third text that I would like to uh, do, and that's in the uh, New Testament. It's the book of Acts. So here's where I want you to understand before we get to this. 
Our understanding of God is always developing. God is the living wholeness of reality. God is the energy that continues to create love and lure creation into a greater wholeness. God is not just some timeless being with a relationship to the past. God does not merely exist, but God is existence. Now, I'm not going to talk about this today because it would take too long to do it. But we also understand that at least from the past revelation of the scriptures, that there's the idea of Trinitarian wholeness. There's the idea of Trinitarian existence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a big theological topic that we're not going to get into today. Let's just keep the concept of God, okay? Okay, God is a being. So in Acts chapter 17, what we see taking place is quite interesting. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul travels to Athens, Greece, in one of his missionary journeys. And the book of Acts gives an account of his travels. And as he comes into the city of Athens, which is a city that produced some of the greatest philosophers, right? Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. And they engaged in some of these philosophical difficult topics all the time. So as Paul goes into Athens, here's what the text tells us. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Well, he's distressed about it because he's a part of Judaism, which began to move away from idols as a way of conceptualizing God. They didn't do it fully, but they made great progress in the Old Testament. So as a rabbi, he's an individual that, um, that began to move away from this idea of, of using the humanization of God in the form of idols. So, it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to a meeting place in the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So to them, there's progress. It's moving forward. And uh, it says in verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. They'd never heard of some of these concepts. So Paul stands up, verse 22, in the meaning of the Areopagus, and he says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. In other words, they have altars for all the gods they believed uh, were in place, but there was one that they did not know about. There is one that they even put a title, in case we missed a God, here's one to an unknown God. <clears throat> so Paul says, okay, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else, the, the wholeness of being. From one man he made all the nations, and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out appointed times in history and boundaries of the lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far, he's not far from any one of us, for in him we live, we move, and we have our being. That's a great line. For in him we live, we move, and have our being. So God is the wholeness of being. I'm not sure we can fully explain that. But what we find is that this unknown God to the, the Greek philosophers is not far from any one of us, that God encompasses his creation as the wholeness of being, and we live within that existence of being as well. Now, all of you have your own experiences. I had one a couple days ago that reminded me that this not just is not just a human thing that we're talking about when we're talking about everything having its existence within God. So a couple mornings ago, I woke up, I look out into the backyard, and there's this dead crow that's about this big that's in the middle of the backyard. I go, well, that's strange. You know, what happened to this bird that had died? We have a fenced-in backyard, so it's not like, you know, a, an animal brought it into the backyard. So I get a shovel out of the garage and a rake, and this is the weirdest thing. I go to, to scoop up the bird... Uh, to dispose of the bird. And right as I was doing that, there was about six or eight other crows that began to, uh, to uh, sit on the housetops and they began squawking. I mean, they were going crazy. I get the crow. I dispose of the crow. I put the shovel and uh, the rake away. They're gone. They're gone. What is going on there? Some, they, they weren't there until I walked out to pick up someone of their flock, I guess you might say. And they began going crazy. They knew. Here's my point. The wholeness of being of God not, does not just relate to humans. It relates to the whole created order. What was the instinct that brought six or eight crows to kind of dwell around me as they were watching me bury this other bird? They were squawking so bad I thought I was in an Alfred Hitchcock film. <laughs> it was strange. Here's my point. Here's my point. When we try to define God, we are trying to do so only from kind of our, the limitation of who we are as human beings. But as we continue to learn and grow and take into account even some of these episodes sometimes, we go, God is the wholeness of being. Whatever that fully means, and I can't fully explain that to you, but he is the wholeness of being, and in him we live and move and have our being as well, right? And then God reveals himself 
ultimately through the person of Jesus. So here is what I suggest as I close. When we ask who is God, maybe the best answer is God is the wholeness of being that is found in everything. God is the living wholeness of all reality. God exists within the community of beings as found in the Trinitarian tradition in Christianity. Again, that's a long, big, difficult topic. But um, there's this idea of community, that God lives within community. Then lastly, God reveals himself as light, love, and spirit. Ultimately, for Christianity in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because that's where the text goes on. After uh, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, he goes on to preach about the resurrection of Jesus as a way of finding what God is like. So you've heard me say this before, and I say it again. Um, God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. We have not always known it, but now we do. Because we are in process. We are learning that when we look at Jesus, we see qualities of the being of God and what he is like. Now, we'll talk about how other religions uh, help in this process two weeks from today. But what I want to do is have, uh, Mark, if you'll go next door and get Corey. We're going to sing a song and we're going to take communion uh, before we finish our service together. Uh, And... As uh, Corey leads us in Cornerstone, again, this is a human projection. What is a cornerstone? Well, every building has one, right? It begins with a cornerstone in the foundation uh, upon which everything else is built. Is this an appropriate way to talk about God? Yes, because there's all kinds of metaphors and anthropomorphisms that are used all through the scriptures to help us conceptualize the idea of God. Um, And so why is it that some of these images are so important to us? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me by still waters. He, you know, restores my soul, the 23rd Psalm, to David. He uses some of these concepts as well. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, stand with me. And Corey's going to lead us in Cornerstone. Then we're going to take communion uh, before we are finished.